Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly, my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. Uh, this is from Genesis uh, 17 to 22. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. They saw him from a distance and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him and we shall see what has become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered them out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and return him to his father. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it that we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robes, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They, they had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father and they said, this we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognised it and said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on loins, loins and mourned his son for many days. Genesis chapter 50. Realising that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against, us, grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, Your father gave us instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, Forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them.
Thank you, Amy. And now we come to our sermon being brought to us today by our minister, Simon. Simon, please bring your words you've prepared. Um, so our sermon for this morning is on the story of Joseph. And it is very hard for some of us, at least, to hear the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis without feeling the overwhelming urge to break into song. Many years ago, when Liz and I were studying biblical studies at Sheffield, one of the exam questions we were set related to the Joseph story. And you could just kind of sense people all around the exam room, running through the names of the brothers in descending order of age by singing Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice quietly to themselves. And brilliant though Joseph and the amazing dream Technicolor Dreamcoat may be, and it is, I went to see it last year in London with Sheridan Smith playing the role of the narrator. It is only one way of reading this story. This story, whilst it can certainly lend itself to the genre of a child-friendly musical with a happy ending and a grand finale, well, there are other themes here which are perhaps rather more troubling. You see, the Joseph story is not actually a positive one. In addition to the themes of sibling rivalry and deception and violence, it's a story that functions within the narrative sweep of the book of Genesis to explain the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt. The end of this story is not the happy reunion of Joseph and his family. It's the slavery of the Jews at the hands of Pharaoh. The irony of the Joseph saga is that the very family that sold their brother into slavery become those who have to sell themselves into slavery to get the grain to escape the famine. This is the kind of story known technically as an origin story and you know all cultures have them. Uh, if you are if you are English one of your origin stories is the Arthur myth for example. And uh, stories like this are the kind of founding myth stories that set the scene for the world of kind of known history that follows them. And in the case of the Joseph stories, uh, these function to explain the socio-economic reality of those who told the story. So you, you've got Egypt as a land where all its riches are in the hands of a ruling elite. And You've got the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob locked into multi-generational servitude. In other words, the Joseph saga sets the scene for the story of Moses and the Exodus. It's often overlooked, but here we have the first example in the story of Israel of what will become their experience down the millennia of being prey to forces which will seek to scapegoat and enslave them due to their otherness, to turn their religious and ethnic identity into a marker of oppression. From Egypt to Babylon to Rome to Venice to Auschwitz to our world, this is a story that echoes down through history in disturbingly contemporary ways. And it all starts with Joseph. 
The focus of today's sermon is not specifically on anti-Semitism, but it is worth holding that long and violent history of oppression in our minds as we explore this story and its implications for us. Well, I want to start now with uh, Old Testament scholar called Walter Brueggemann, who is something of a hero. He raises a startling but obvious question. He asks, why is it that God is frequently described as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but never as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph? Joseph's absence from Israel's theological and origin explaining mantra is on the surface mystifying. After all, Joseph at the beginning of his story is all set to be the next great patriarch of Judaism. He's dreaming dreams of God's promises and by one reading of things the unfolding of that dream into reality gives the shape of his entire story. However, Joseph's dream is also rather different to the dream of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You see, it's not a dream of a covenant of blessing for the people of Israel and through them blessing the whole world. Rather, Joseph's dream is one of God's blessing to him personally. According to Joseph's dream, he would be the first, in spite of such awkwardnesses as birth order, and everyone would bow down before him. And sure enough, in the story of his life, despite its traumatic moments, he ends up being rescued from death and prison to rise to the greatest heights of Egyptian affairs, and his brothers and father do indeed bow down before him. He is the hero of his own story. So with such a story of success, why doesn't Joseph have his place with the other three ancestors? whose stories comprise Genesis. Why is his name not remembered in the same way? Brueggemann ventures an answer. He suggests that Joseph's name was dropped because he conducted the imperial work of Pharaoh. Instead of resisting, he collaborated with the figure who later threatens Israel's very existence. He sells out to the empire of Egypt. And here we find ourselves in the world of competing dreams. Abraham dreamed of the faithfulness of God and of God's blessing for his descendants and through them the entire world. Joseph dreamed of personal greatness and Pharaoh, of course, dreamed of disaster for his empire. And as we all know from Andrew Lloyd Webber, the king, I mean Elvis, I mean Pharaoh, was deeply disturbed by a dream of his own, a nightmare of a coming threat. And Joseph became not only the interpreter of Pharaoh's dream, but also its consultant, manager, and indeed chaplain. From his position of royal power, Joseph seized all the money, all the livestock, even all the bodies of Pharaoh's subjects, all for the sake of establishing what became an imperial food monopoly. The famine may have been managed, but the end result of that crisis was that the rich got richer and the poor were impoverished and enslaved and Joseph made it all happen. And I do just ponder in our own time of natural disaster, which, you know, 
the, the, the ecology is the big one, climate change, but actually the one we're living with most presciently is the global pandemic. How are people managing that? And are we seeing the rich getting richer and the poor being impoverished and enslaved further? Just something to hold in our minds as we go through. Anyway, Brueggemann suggests that Joseph traded in the old covenantal dreams of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And in the interest of fulfilling his own visions of personal grandeur, gave himself over to what Walter Brueggemann calls the deep defining nightmare of the empire. And that nightmare remains with us to this day, co-opting us to its will by fueling our fantasies of grandeur and success. We're all of us tempted to collaborate with power. But back to the story, putting it bluntly, Joseph's actions in Egypt paved the way for Israel's slavery in Egypt. Joseph might be the hero of his own story, but in the wider narrative of scripture, Joseph isn't a God-honouring hero. He's a self-honouring survivalist. And so as the Joseph story is retold and reshaped down the generations, Joseph's name remains significantly absent from Israel's formula of its heroic and defining patriarchs. It remains the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but not Joseph. So how might we read and hear this passage? Well, maybe a starting point is to recognise that Christians and Jews alike are heirs to a vision of God who is in the process of healing and reconciling all of creation and that God's covenant promise made to Abraham is the calling out of a people of faith in each generation through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. Therefore, the people of God are always to be those people who are both open to receiving God's blessing and to being used for God's good purposes in the world. And this calling will, or at least should, always contrast with Pharaoh's deep defining nightmare of an empire that obsessively grapples with the threats to its security and scarcity. The people of God should always stand in opposition to the forces of empire in any age. So what kind of people are we going to be? What dream, what vision is going to drive us? Are we going to be God's people of faith or Pharaoh's agents of empire? Will we be the heirs of Abraham's dream or Joseph's? Are we going to be a people of covenant, outward looking, focused on bringing the blessing of God to all the nations of the earth? Or are we going to be an imperial people, inward looking, focused on defending ourselves at all costs from those things that threaten our unity or security? The tension between these two defines the story of Israel as we find it in scripture just as it defines the history of our own Christian faith tradition. From Joseph's story, we learn the hard truth, that it is perfectly possible 
for people of faith and vision to become so focused on the threats to their empires that the covenant promise of good news to all people is ignored, distorted, diluted, seduced and co-opted. This can happen ever so subtly because the language of both the dream of covenant and the nightmare of empire uses a common religious vocabulary. It's very easy to dress up a defence of empire as God's will for God's people. Just look at those Christians who defend Donald Trump as God's anointed leader. But it's too easy to throw stones across the Atlantic. What about us here in the UK? Well, we don't exactly have an unambiguous track record of British Christianity focusing on the transformation of society and the blessing of all people without distinction. Too easily, British churches become centred in on themselves, defining their theological position against all threats, whilst condemning the vulnerable to exclusion or enslavement to destructive ideologies. The continuing theological justifications of sexism, homophobia and racism are evils that have yet to be banished from our communities of faith. Christians can be very good at distorting the vision of a God who is good news for all people into something that is far more insular, far more self-serving of our own ends and purposes. And we do it by rewriting our history. Just as Israel recast Joseph in the retelling of his story, so we too can recast the complexities of our own histories. Just this week, I chaired a session available on YouTube, if you're interested, on how our Baptist story of dissent can be a resource and an inspiration for our engagement with those who are marginalised, disempowered and enslaved. But we also reflected that sometimes Baptists have a tendency to rewrite their history to one where we are the only people who have got their theology right and where our separation from others who think differently is a God-ordained means of protecting our own righteousness. Dissent that leads to solidarity with the oppressed can so easily become dissent of protectionism of our own righteousness. Just as Joseph gets excluded from Israel's defining mantra, and survives as a feel-good family drama perfect for musical theatre. So we all face the temptation to recast the darker moments of our stories, excluding or hiding the uncomfortable realities of our complicity in the forces of empire. We might, for example, laud the fact that we used to be a Christian country and wish we were once again. We might feel pride that Britannia used to rule the waves and we might feel suitably patriotic watching last night of the proms and get all upset if somebody threatens to not sing the songs that make us feel so British inside. And this can make it all too easy for us to forget the flip side to our story, which is that British history includes us being colonial monsters and that this has effects that affect the world to this day. 
And then when someone points out the ongoing evils of systemic racism, we have the mechanism at hand to absolve ourselves of our cultural guilt, pointing to the evils of others, those who lived in a different time and by different rules, all the while resisting our ongoing complicity in and benefit from such systems. We need as individuals, churches and nations to learn to tell our stories more honestly. We need to resist the temptation to disconnect Joseph from Moses, to hide the fact that our stories are complex and compromised. No one church has got it all right. No one nation has a glorious and golden history. None of us is immune from complicity in actions that are destructive of others. So what about Bloomsbury? We like to see ourselves as inclusive and liberal, and we are, to our immense credit. I genuinely believe we are one of those congregations that keeps the dream of a loving God alive. But if we are honest, we can still detect within ourselves the tendencies to stand in judgment on others who see their faith differently. How do we feel about those who ex espouse exclusive ideologies and theologies? How do we feel about those who deny the ministry of women or the validity of LGBTQ inclusion? The temptation is for us to feel superior, to make ourselves righteous to the exclusion of others. And of course, the reality is we have no moral high ground on which to stand. We are, all of us, just sinners saved by grace. We're not Abraham to their Joseph. We too can be Joseph if we want to, defending our own empire against the forces that threaten it. So we need to be willing to examine ourselves, willing to look back at the story of our church with honesty. As Paul put it to the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see whether you are living in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realise that Jesus Christ is in you? That's a quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. Our calling is to be the heirs of a vision, not the chaplains of the nightmare. Our calling is to stand against the forces of exclusion and oppression, to resist both the powerful and petty empires of this world, whether they exist on the national stage or the parochial. We are the custodians of a vision of good news for all people, in all places, without exception. And we need to keep awake from the seductive daydreams of power and prestige that lead us inexorably to nightmares of protectionism. And we need to learn to dream again in our time that ancient dream of covenant blessing, where God is for all and where God's people are the means of God's blessing. This is the gospel of Christ and it is this that we proclaim. Thanks be to God and Amen. Thank you, Simon. A powerful set of words. Let us take a few moments now in silence to reflect on them, after which we will have a panel discussion. So I ask that please do use the chat function to provide any thoughts or responses that you may have. If I can ask our panelists to start their videos and unmute.
I'm going to start by reflecting that when I read Simon's sermon last night and listening to it again today, I had to go back and read the whole of the story of Jacob and Joseph um, because I too am of that generation where that story is the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. And yet there is a lot to reflect on within that story. Do any of the panel have a particular reflection they want to open with? In which case I shall ask, start by asking a question that I think relates to where Simon finished. Where do we as individuals seek to take pride in our differences, um, in our own righteousness? either individually, as a community in Bloomsbury, or even as a community in Britain. Dermot and Tim, your mics are unmuted. <laughs> Put it in your way. <laughs> to avoid responding to your specific, specific, specific question there, Matthew, I'm actually thinking about initial reflections on what Simon shared, because it was the first time that I'd, that I'd heard it and seen it. So there are a number of thoughts going through in my head with regard to what Simon shared and the story. One, um, I've always been taken in the story of Joseph, and I, I love the story of Joseph, but I've always been taken by the absolute naked favoritism displayed by Jacob towards uh, Joseph, and the fact that that is not commented on or challenged or uh, attributed to anything, it's just, it's just a given. Uh, and Jacob made no attempt to hide his favoritism. And uh, that must have been galling for uh, his other children and other family members. Uh, and I'm conscious too in thinking about Joseph and the implications and the linkaging through the generations with Moses and the after effects. In reading through the Genesis story again of, of Joseph, there are some interesting things. It, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. So I'm not quite convinced about uh, Joseph's story being about self-promotion. Uh, uh, I think there was an element of uh, an aspect of Joseph's story that is... Um, uh, God ordained and uh, that God used it. And again, I'm not sure about the, the, the kind of binary nature of are we a covenant people or are we a, an imperial people? The truth is that our motivation is never pure and will always be tainted with a measure of uh, self-protection, self-awareness. And uh, so, so this any binary nature, I'm, I'm not sure about that. What I do take hope for and hope from is because Joseph, I'm sure, did not foresee during the generations the full implications of his role or his actions. And I think given that our motivation is never pure, I think we cannot see it. So we are as honest and as, as decent as we feel we can be at a more particular time in which we live. But even though the implications of what Joseph said and did 
may have been felt in future generations, what encourages me is the fact that God can use it and use our, our ambivalence, our broken bits, the bits that we don't see, and can still redeem it and bring, bring good out of it. And that offers me hope for now. It offers me hope for Bloomsbury. It offers me hope for the world. It offers me hope on days when I despair of what I see round about me. And I, and I, I keep coming back to the message of God to Pharaoh 10 times. Let my people go. Let my people go. And I believe that the song of the Spirit of God is still, let my people go. And those who are oppressed, those who are held in bondage, those who are held in somehow a lesser category, I think it's still, let my people go. Yes. Without, it, it does us well to remember that without the story of Joseph, there would be no story of Moses. Liz, you've come off mute. Have you got a particular yeah. comment you would like to make? Well, um, what I had, I jotted down a few notes during the sermon and um, I totally echo uh, what Dermot said about um, the, the, for me, I, I do still come away um, feeling a bit sorry for Joseph and also feeling a bit sorry for the brothers because the reality is um, I don't think Jacob comes out of this particularly well in his um, treatment of his children. And uh, I've kind of always thought that, you know, you're going to give this uh, amazing co and uh, treat, treat somebody different. And uh, in that kind of environment, um, I think um, the outcome uh, could happen, you know, to, to other people. I don't think that, 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 that this is um, Joseph being utterly selfish I think it, he's being uh, a product of of that kind of upbringing and, and, and history so that was one thing I wrote down that I, I do feel sorry for, for, for all the characters in the story I think that the story is obviously really complex in a sense in that you've got this standalone story where Joseph does come out this hero um, because he um, he he basically, despite everything chucked at him, manages to, you know, become uh, really high up in Egypt. And then the brothers come and he saves the day with regards to the famine and all of that kind of stuff. So in a sense, he is a hero. But then when you tag it onto the story of Moses, um, that kind of suddenly you're like, well, that's how they ended up in Egypt. And that's how, you know. So I think it's a really complex story and I think the question that I have is that I, I do I totally resonate with Simon's idea of how do we how do we tell our stories and how are we honest about our stories because um, we have to look back at the whole of the story of Joseph and, and the complexities and the fact that nobody comes out of this as being squeaky clean actually you know you've got Jacob and you've got and I would I would also really question how uh, often we are taught as children uh, in Sunday school that that um, that it's it's kind of a simple story, but actually it isn't. And I would question putting too much on it as God uh, has created this. God did this because that's too simplistic. Uh, you know, it's kind of saying that God's okay with favoritism and God's okay with and actually. 
I've had to learn that that might not be the case. So I think for me, one of the, the, the learnings from it is that, yes, yeah, stuff happens. <laughs> it, it, I often say this, but stuff happens in life and it's, it's all really complex and messy and people don't always do their best and they may be trying, but they, they haven't got, you know, the, 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 the kind of future view that we have of what happened in, in um, uh, Egypt. Um, and I think we have to hold that in this, absolutely, as Dermot says, God can do stuff and that God does care about the individuals and that um, we have to be careful about how we look at our story and we just have to be open and honest and willing to move on and change and, yeah, be allowed to be freed. Yes. I just want to pick up on something that Helen's put in the chat on a different angle. I've been reading about this story within a book about racism in British churches. I too have grown up with the musical version, viewpoint, angle. Um, we often forget that this is a story with Middle Eastern and African setting and characters. But in our head, we do have Donny Osmond, which is unhelpful. And Duncan has commented um, about Simon's comment that Christians should resist imperialism. I'm thinking about this in the context of the United Nations General Assembly in New York this week. According to the UN Secretary General, the world is faces, facing an epochal health crisis. The biggest economic calamity since the Great Depression and the threat of a new Cold War between the United States and China. Are the US and China the empires we must resist? Are they the new Egypts? I also reflect back having reread the whole of the um, Joseph story on the chapter 47 of Genesis, which is the section where the famine hits. And in the first year, having taken 20% of the harvest for the last seven years and stored it up, Joseph sells it back to those people who are now without food for all their money. The next year, when there's still no food, they come again for, to Joseph for aid, and he sells it to them for all their livestock, i.e. all their potential for future earnings. The next year, it's all their land. And then finally, it is them themselves for slavery. And it is not just the Jews who find themselves in this situation. It is the poor of Egypt as well. As all of that power is accumulated with Pharaoh. Amy, have you come off mute to say something? I was always taught this story in the evangelical church as Joseph, yeah, he starts out a bit arrogant, but he becomes this wonderful model for leadership. And we should all kind of, you know, emulate Joseph's example and learn from his example. And I always thought, no, he's really arrogant and also quite manipulative, like especially what he does to his brothers, like pretending he's going to punish them and then 
planting things on them and framing them for theft. That's not very moral. I just, I always kind of got really annoyed about that. But then what Simon said about us not standing on the moral high ground was actually quite challenging to me because I sometimes feel like I was. I feel like I actually know I have, you know, the right ideas. I've got these evangelicals sussed. Um, and I've actually, I think in my mind, been positioning myself as maybe above them or them as the enemy, whereas actually they're not the enemy. They just have a different perspective. And um, while I don't think there's the right perspective, it's about, I guess, also, I believe this is the right kind of, I believe my own kind of interpretation is perhaps a better one, but not necessarily thinking that it, it makes me better and also knowing that maybe I could possibly be wrong as well. So I guess even if we think we have a better interpretation of these stories, it's having, I guess, the humility and the willingness to listen to other people who might um, still hold the evangelical position. Um, but that can be very difficult, especially if they're using those stories to bring minorities down. So it's about that difficult balance of challenging things, but also not thinking that we are somehow incredibly superior because we're doing so. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm conscious that that last section of the reading you've brought to save me with the brothers are so fearful that once their father has died, that they will no longer have his protection from Joseph. Um, and they have to come along and say, effectively, your father's dying wish was that you forgive us for what we did to you. Um, and that you continue to look after your people. And Nigel brings out something similar. I wonder if there is a more daily aspect to Joseph's story. That of returning good for evil, of not holding grudges, of putting others first rather than ourselves. Remember the first time that Joseph's brothers come to Egypt for food and they pay for it, he puts the coins back in the grain sacks. And they don't know when they go away with them. And they are very fearful that they haven't paid for the grain. So yes, Joseph does bless his brothers and his family through the position of power he's achieved. But it also has consequences, particularly when Joseph is no longer there to wield that power and protection. I guess one of the Does anyone else I'll just share briefly. I, I, I think it's one of the it's all the, the complexity of it all really, I think, and where it leaves you is um, empire can manifest itself in so many ways. So even churches can become part of empire. And so as individuals, what do we do? And I think I'm left with almost like on a daily basis, almost like what Nigel has said, there are small, small decisions that we need to make each day, but at the same time we have to survive within whatever empire structure that we are sort of under or in um, but there's also something about collectively we have some strength if we can all work together as well as our own little decisions that we make on a daily basis so there's something about collectively helping to shine light on um, the injustices and 
things that need to be brought to light. Um, at the same time, on a daily basis, having to survive within the empath structures that we are, you know, on, you know, when we get up tomorrow morning and we go to work or, or don't, or, you know, so yeah, it's, I think it's just really complex and I, I'm not offering anything really helpful to say, but I think there's something about hope for each one to make little tiny decisions, but also collectively to join and feel the strength of us as a community that we can sort of make a bit more of a difference. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think those complexities are a good place to finish um, as we have to struggle with how individually, corporately, people do seek to garner power through opportunities in times of weakness and strife and struggle. We come now to our time of prayer. So I will pass over to Tim and Dermot. Our intercessory prayers this morning are um, informed by a verse from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Our loving God, as we gather this morning as a fellowship of your children, we hold before you the world, the world that you so loved and still love. We hold before you her many peoples, her creatures, her landscapes, her oceans, with gratitude for the gift of it all. And we pray for your blessing on it all knowing that not a single sparrow falls, but you know it. You are the God who sees. We continue to pray for the responses to the COVID-19 virus, with the implications for nations, societies, health resources and economies. We pray for wisdom for the scientists and medics as they seek to develop effective and safe vaccines. We pray for leaders and politicians who must make decisions about the effective use of resources. And we pray for a generosity of spirit among nations, for the poorest on the earth, and for a willingness to share knowledge, developments and resources with those who have less or none. Let your kingdom come and may we be a hopeful expression of it. We pray for all those affected by the news this week, by the restrictions and the time frame suggested. We pray for those who have had feelings stirred up, feelings of uncertainty, anxiety and fear. We pray for those worried about their health, their mental health, their jobs, their finances and loved ones. We pray for those who just want things to go back to how they were. Help us to be aware and sensitive to those around us 
who may be struggling or afraid to admit that they are struggling. Give us eyes to see and hearts to feel and decisions to act. Let your kingdom come and may we be a hopeful expression of it. We pray for the church and the expression of it that is us here at Bloomsbury. As we adjust and try to work out what all that is going on means for us, help us by your spirit to discern what you would have us leave behind, what you would have us hold on to, and what new things you would have us engage with. Help us to discern new, necessary and hopeful ways of being church. We are aware that we are made for relationship, for connectedness, and we all carry a deep need to belong. Help us work out how to honour these things, these God-given things, as we continue to be church in difficult times. Let your kingdom come among us, and may we be a hopeful expression of it. And finally, loving God, we pray for ourselves. We bring you all that we are with our own feelings, worries and concerns. We bring our need to be in control or to feel that we are in control. We bring to you our other illusions the things we tell ourselves in order to manage our fears. We bring to you our heightened sense of our own fragility, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And as you patiently wait for us, help us to put our trust in you, the God of hope, May we trust you in the face of uncertainty. May we trust you in the face of fear. May we trust you in the face of feeling a need to hold it all together, to not admitting to being frightened, vulnerable, or afraid. And may Christ be formed in us and revealed to us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. May you, the God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>